Welcome back to Beyond Prisons. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Sonnenstein, and I'm joined by my other co-host, Kim Wilson. How are you doing, Kim? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you? I'm doing all right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who our guest is this week and what we'll be talking about? Well, I'm really excited this week uh, to have Dr. Anthony Montero as our guest. Uh, Dr. Montero is an educator, an activist, and also one of the foremost authorities on the scholarship and life of W.E.B. Du Bois. Tony, as he's known to his friends, is also a dear friend uh, and a former colleague of mine. And he served as my external reader on my dissertation committee. I'm deeply grateful for the many years of friendship that I've had with Tony and for his mentoring. I can honestly say that, you know, Tony's changed my life. He changed the direction of my scholarship. And so I'm really, really grateful that he's agreed to join us today and to share with us, you know, what he knows. And um, yeah, so thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate your time and your energy. Well, Kim, I can't tell you how happy I am to join the two of you. And I'm just really thrilled. I, I, I don't know what to say or how to put it into words. You know, um, we haven't seen each other for a little while. I miss you. I miss our conversations. And I just wish you were here on the East Coast to join us in the work that we're doing. <laughs> I really do. Same here. Same here. I definitely miss Philly. I miss, you know, the organizing and, and everything yeah. that is going on there. I mean, to yeah. tap into the energy of all the work that you're doing and mm -hmm. uh, all the people that we know uh, yeah. are involved with is just incredible. So, yeah, and it's been it's been months now. It was yeah. like what my birthday it was back in October uh, yeah. when yeah. we all got together at my house. And whew, yeah. that was that was fun. That was fun. I mean, we really, we had, we had our own version of Saturday school right there in, in the living room. So that, that's how birthday parties go at our house, right? Yes. That's what happens when you get a bunch of activists together. So yes. um, that was awesome. But, um, you know, I'm glad that you're here and I want to kick this off. I'm going to ask you a few questions. And the first one is what informs your work? What informs, you know, your views? And how do you see that in the context of, you know, prison abolition? And if you see it in the context of prison abolition, I know that you founded Educators for Mumia. Uh, you've done a lot of work with MOVE and folks like Pam Africa over the years, your personal friends with Pam and a number of other folks in MOVE as well. And there's a lot, there's a lot that you've been doing, a lot that uh, you have going on. So I'd love for you to share uh, with our listeners, um, what informs your work? You know, Kim, that's a, a very good question because I was involved, I think, in prison abolition before I knew I was involved in prison <laughs> abolition and before there was a movement for prison abolition. Because, you know, going back to my teenage years, I was involved in the movements to free Huey P. Newton and then the great international movement to free Angela Davis. And then, of course, when Mumia was arrested and convicted and put on death row, I'd been involved uh, for decades now in uh, the movement for his freedom and for justice for him. And because of Mumia, that brought me closer to the struggle of the Move Nine and, of course, uh, the struggle to free Ramona Africa, the only adult survivor of the May 13, 1985 bombing of an entire neighborhood, including the move house where 11 people uh, were murdered. So I was involved without knowing the name of it in what we would today call prison abolition. Mm -hmm. But the way I understand it now is more from the standpoint of the existential crisis of of the system of the American capitalist and white supremacist social systems. And by that, I, I basically mean this. Abolition is at the top of the agenda of the fight for new people's democracy 
for justice for the poor and working people and for an end to these horrible, uh, almost medieval institutions that are containing and drawing the life out of millions and millions of people who are in these places that we call prisons because really they are poor. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about prison abolition, we're really talking about a new stage, not just of the struggle for democracy, but the struggle against the victimization of the poor, and mm -hmm. hence a struggle to end poverty. Now, all of this fits in this larger paradigm of the struggle for social justice. So, I mean, that's the way I see prison abolitionism. I think in a very profound sense, prison abolition is at the center of the struggle for justice uh, in this country. Well, thank you for that. There's so much in what you just said there. And I'm thinking back to, you know, um, a number of things that you've written about the existential condition mm -hmm. of people that, you know, society has chosen to place outside of what it considers, you know, quote unquote, normal, right? Mm -hmm. And what does this mean when we're talking about it in terms of prison abolition, in terms of the broader question of carcerality, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we're uh, talking not just about people in cages, but you know, what does this do to people in the community? Absolutely. To people that were, you know, that are returning from prison, right? Returning citizens, um, if you will. But it implicates, you know, so many other institutions as well. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and explain, you know, to us this question of what it means to be human, right? What it means yes. to be human in this context and right now, because I think that we're at a really important moment in terms of history, in terms of politics in this country. And, and you talked about a new stage for democracy mm -hmm. and this struggle. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. There are three words or concepts that you introduced that I think I'd like to address or engage in in attempting to answer uh, or mm -hmm. respond to your, your question and your assertions. Uh, one is the question, as you said, returning citizens. Mm -hmm. The second is, was the question of the humanity of people. And the third is the question of politics. You know, um, <clears throat> returning citizens, it seems to me that for the most part, once a woman or man or child has been incarcerated and hence defined as criminal, they never are restored to full citizenship. Mm -hmm. And the importance of this, when you look at it in a macro sense, not just the individual, is that the carceral state and incarceration is itself, by definition, an attack upon citizenship. Absolutely. We are back to a situation before the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. In other words, the carceral state so distorts political relationships and relationships of citizenship of legal relationships, of legal rights, legal protections, that the tens of millions of people who are or have been incarcerated in this country are less than second-class citizens. They never are restored to full citizenship. In some instances, even being charged with a crime compromises one's citizenship. So yeah. we're looking at perhaps uh, upwards of 15% of 
of the American population who are not full citizens in the country where they are supposed to be fully uh, empowered as citizens. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Well, once in a bourgeois or liberal political system, you deprive a person of legal rights, of legal protections, of which we identify with citizenship, you have thus reduced them to a lower status of human being, just in the same way that the enslaved Africans without legal rights were considered less than human. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm making this point clear enough. You know, my point is this, that in a system that is in theory ruled by law and mm -hmm. a human being is not just a human being by, the, uh, by dint of his or her birth, but by the fact that he or she is a citizen. You mm -hmm. take those rights away, he or she is less than human. The mm -hmm. prison population uh, is treated the way it is because it is viewed as less than human. Now, the third point is that of politics, of ideology, and of power. And I think it is beyond question that the carceral state, the prison industrial complex, the police state is designed to maintain the power of a corporate managerial neoliberal elite and to demean and undermine the power of those who are not a part of that racial group, that racial elite, and uh, are therefore defined as, quote, minorities or marginalized people. Mm -hmm. So the carceral state in the, at the end of the day is designed to uphold and maintain and enforce uh, a certain set of political or power relationships. And finally, it exists, after we say all of the things that we've already said, as a visible, concrete, institutional, ever-present example for everybody to see of the fact that those who have power terrorize those who do not. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. most of us, in one or another way, live under conditions of fear and dread of being in prison, of being locked up, of being beaten, of being the victims of the carceral state, of the police state. Mm -hmm. That's kind mm -hmm. of the way I would begin to, you know, engage those points and those questions that you raised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to go back to the first point. The language or this terminology of returning citizens has always bothered me because it, as you very well pointed out, doesn't quite capture the reality of what is happening, right? So we're when we're talking about uh, formerly incarcerated people, the the fact, uh, again, as you pointed out, is that you know they're civil and legally dead, civilly and legally dead, considered dead. They lose many of those rights. Uh, sometimes they don't know that they've lost these rights, mm -hmm. and uh, and and there's really no. Um, force that is uh, making it so that they are informed of these rights. Now, there have been efforts to, to do this in at the state level, uh, and some states have done this so that, you know, uh, incarcerated people understand what what is at stake here. Without being informed of what they're losing, I think people understand, you know, their own situation quite yeah. well. But for the sake of, of uh, the discussion and, and for what we're uh, talking about today, I think it's important to point that out. Mm -hmm. um, that said, you know, you said something really critical here about the attack upon citizenship, right? And when we think about 
incarcerated people and formerly incarcerated people. You know, a, a lot of politicians like to talk about, you know, second chances. Um, the former vice president championed the bill called, you know, the Second Chance Act. And, you know, that was very popular and he had a lot of support for that, uh, for that legislation. But people aren't really given second chances. They're seen and they're treated as if they don't exist, as if they don't belong, right. as if they should disappear, go away. And this is, in my view, one of the problems and one of the obstacles well, that we confront. So I, I'd yeah, love to hear yeah, you know, yeah. your I, thoughts I mean, on this. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, just, you know, the more we talk about this, um, the more we are compelled to to apply to the situation new language just what you described is the erasure of large parts of the u.s population you know and by erasure they become invisible non-existent uh, almost the socially walking dead now once you take African-Americans whose enforced invisibility is uh, almost a, a defining part of the system that we live in. In other words, be it the uh, entertainment media uh, or the entertainment industrial complex, be it the news media, be it social media, be it the legal system or whatever, the African-American people since the time of enslavement up till today have lived in an enforced invisibility. That's why you get in, in social science and popular discussion and so on, the use of the word marginalized when applied to African-Americans. Mm -hmm. You are marginalized, which means that you are in a status of enforced visibility. Mm -hmm. And one of the struggles that black people have waged for a long time is to become visible. Mm -hmm. The carceral state is a, another way, a contemporary way of enforcing a, an invisibility, a non-existence in terms of the society at large upon large parts of the African-American people. You know, so you get this conjunction of deep impoverishment. And I, and I, I suggest that close to 70, 75% of African-Americans either live in one level or stage of poverty or very close to it. The vast majority of African-Americans live in this state. Poverty is a form of enforced invisibility. Now you add to that incarceration, long-term incarceration, and all of the stigma that one carries after leaving the prison. We're talking about, at least when you talk about the African-American people, and the African-American people are like the canary in the mine. Mm -hmm. They are the uh, symbol of what the future for more than African-Americans will be. Mm -hmm. If we look at the African-American people, the vast majority of us live in states of deep invisibility, of profound dehumanization, of, of a forced march to social death. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah to wow there's so much that you just said there that um yeah, yeah. do you want to chime in brian go ahead <clears throat> yeah actually you know i was just switching gears slightly but really just kind of reacting to a lot of what you just said which i completely agree with um i was wondering if you have any comments or insight on how you know our listeners with with all of what you just said in mind might be able to differentiate between what kind of work is being done in the community that has an eye towards abolition versus what is trapped in sort of this this effort to maintain 
you know, like you said, this neoliberal bourgeois system or order. And, you know, in, in preparing for this, I, I watched some of your lectures and I, I thought you had some really compelling, interesting things to say about the bourgeois economy and how it, it forces all responsibility and blame on the individual. You know, I was wondering if you could just, with all of that in mind, sort of talk about the difference between abolition work in the community versus sort of this neoliberal maintenance uh, of the system. Well, you know, Brian, um, my thinking is very deeply indebted to the theorizing and phenomenologies of W.E.B. Du Bois and James Baldwin. And, and, you know, I really recommend them to everyone that is trying to, you know, kind of conceptualize just what all of this is about. Um, James Baldwin, you know, especially in an essay entitled Down at the Cross, which is subtitled uh, A Letter from a Region of My Mind, points out that the African American is forced into a life and death struggle for his mere human dignity. That whether there is a movement that calls itself abolitionism or civil rights or the new civil rights or whatever, the African-American people in their churches, in their sororities, in their communities, in their mosques, wherever they are, are engaged in a day-to-day -day struggle for visibility, for humanity, and for dignity. I mean, at the very essence of this, and, and, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is no immediate quick answer, but at the very essence of this is the African-American people's fight against the white supremacist social system. And by the white supremacist social system, I'm talking about a social arrangement that reproduces white privilege but more than white privilege, the identity of whiteness, which itself is a negation of the humanity of black folk. So we have to put a name on this at some point. And I think abolitionism is a good name. I think new civil rights is a good name. Anti-death penalty is a good name. But I think at its essence, at its core, we're talking about the fight against the most horrific forms of marginalization and a really demonization, criminalization of an entire people. Uh, that's the way I would put it. I think that this struggle is far larger than just the United States. This is a struggle that can only be legally expressed under international human rights laws and and UN declarations against genocide and for human rights. That is how severe and dangerous the situation is in my mind. Yeah, I think, um, go back just for a second to what you were saying about Baldwin. Um, mm. I know I, I reread that essay. Um, oh, you did? Prompting. I did, I did, I had to. It was just, it, it was so necessary. I did it last week, right after we talked. Um, and it's like, it, it, what struck me about it, you know, and, and it's been so long, I don't even remember when I read it, uh, you know, the, the first time or the third time or whatever, but, you know, reading it again, post, you know, Michael Brown, post Trayvon, mm -hmm. post Tamir Rice, and mm -hmm. particularly Tamir Rice, yeah. and, uh, you know, and, and the children that are being uh, murdered by police. Mm -hmm. And, you know, reading the, the part where um, he's talking about, he's describing the incident uh, where the, you know, police uh, are muttering to themselves, you know, why don't you stay uptown where right, you belong, right? right, right? right. Then he talks about, you know, he describes that incident when he was 10 years old of being harassed by two cops mm -hmm. uh, and being left, you know, in the in the parking lot there, you know, uh, with face up. And, you know, it's just he's 10. 
he's 10, mm -hmm. right? And it parallels for me, you know, uh, the video of Tamir Rice just kept replaying in, in mm -hmm. my mind as I'm reading this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, but I, I, I see that um, what Baldwin is doing, you know, and you, you talk about this quite a bit, uh, he's really challenging the white world's assumptions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, he is pushing back against this stuff, and he's unapologetic, right? right? <laughs> and and that pisses people off, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That really bothers people. And I, I want you to talk a little bit more, not just about Baldwin, but mm -hmm. you know, between Baldwin and Du Bois, because I'm right. seeing something mm -hmm. that you know is happening with Baldwin that you know especially now after the documentary and full disclosure i haven't seen it yet but you know i plan on it <laughs> but what i'm seeing in terms of conversation around baldwin and du bois is the same thing that happened to king they're turning him into a they're turning them into benign figures mm -hmm, right mm -hmm, and they're mm -hmm. trying to you know take the sting out of baldwin in ways that make particularly white people feel comfortable mm -hmm. with, you know, this black radical. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that as we're having these conversations and as we're turning to, you know, uh, uh, the literature and the black radical tradition um, <laughs> and what have you, that it's important to to, to note this, to take stock of this right. so that right. you're not- but, but you know, uh, those who would attempt to appropriate Baldwin or Du Bois to be used against Baldwin and Du Bois, <laughs> you know, I think it's going to be difficult. But, you know, for, for example, you know, what you describe in that essay and what I think Baldwin gives us is a phenomenology of racial predation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that this is not a benign system of white people wanting to be white and black people wanting to be black and racial differences producing conflict uh, that has occurred throughout history. That's not what we're looking at. We're looking mm -hmm. at a predatory, aggressive, and violent system of, of racial oppression that in many ways surpasses even the worst uh, uh, forms of direct colonialism. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what he described. And he describes the mechanisms of terror against ordinary black folk, in, including black children. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, you know, and, and, and Baldwin is probably the greatest essayist in the English language. There's nothing to compare to him. So he not only brings his own life experience to the table to point out what the system looks like for real, but he is able to use language and conceptualizations and to take the human intellect where it had never been before. And I think it's the same for Du Bois. Now, of course, Du Bois introduces the concept of the color line. The color line is a metaphor, not just for racial division, but for racial oppression. Mm -hmm. And what Du Bois says, and this is how it, I think Du Bois, and you probably know this, I think this is in your dissertation, that Du Bois points out that the color line and racial oppression is a threat to bourgeois or liberal democracy in general itself. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Which was the point I tried to make earlier, that this carceral state, this police state, is an attack upon democracy. So, you know, the hypocrisy, and this is one of the great things about Baldwin, Baldwin is always uncovering the mm -hmm. deep hypocrisy of the white world of the white mind, of the white life world, and the hypocrisy of white people to claim that they are the upholders of democracy and that democracy is somehow a white invention. 
you know, while they are carrying out the most brutal forms of anti-democratic repression of millions and tens of millions of people based merely upon the fact that their skin is not white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that, um, yeah, I did talk about that in, in my dissertation. I'm, uh, I'm, wow, I'm, I'm surprised you even remembered that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> What, are you saying to me that you've forgotten it? Uh, no, I didn't okay. forget. But, you know, uh, speaking to that point specifically about the color line, I mean, I, uh, one of the things that I did in, in my research was to draw upon uh, Lewis Gordon, you know, and he talks about the color line as being both concrete and metaphorical. And I think that that was, you know, a really important point because that, uh, as he put it, you know, the malleability of the color line meant that it could be redrawn. Right. And this was a really profound, you know, sort of move, because if the color line could be redrawn in terms of not just race, but also in terms of gender, et cetera, uh, that that had profound implications. Right. So we could think about the color line more broadly. And you know, the other thing that, that you mentioned here, and I you know, uh, want to go back to it because I think it's, it's also an important point, is this notion about uh, racialized subjects, right? And part of what is happening here is that you know, uh, when we think about Du Bois, as you pointed out, and I want you to define phenomenology okay. uh, for people because mm-hmm. I think that you know, we can use these terms and, and, and toss them around, but you know, there, there may be a few people who don't know what that means. So right. do you mind giving a, a brief yeah. definition of what oh, you mean yeah. by phenomenology? Oh, yeah. First of all, let me say the word phenomenology is very important. And it's not a word or concept that cannot be uh, understood. Very simply, phenomenology is a way of knowing the world that we inhabit based not just upon a quote-unquote objective observation of things, but based upon the fact of our direct involvement in this world. For example, you remember in Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk in the uh, foreword to it, the last sentence he says, and need I mention, I who write am uh, flesh of the flesh and bone of the bone of those Mm -hmm. within the veil, by -hmm. which he meant you know, at this time, you know, he has a PhD in history. He's written a foundational sociological work and a foundational work in the African slave trade. You know, he's an established uh, social scientist. But then when he writes Souls of Black Folk, he upsets the social science um, uh, establishment by saying, as a social scientist, I will not view black people from the standpoint of being disengaged from them, but I will view them and analyze the situation as one of them. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing that Baldwin does. It it is phenomenology at its best, that to know the world, you must be in it. Or better yet, to know the world, you must be involved in the struggle to change the world. There is no academic knowledge that trumps the great knowledge of people who think, write, and analyze the situation as they are involved in it and involved in changing it. So when you talk about Baldwin or Du Bois, you're talking about great phenomenologists. I would say innovative phenomenologists. Uh, that's kind of what I meant by it. I don't know that, I, that that definition works for everybody or whether I was being clear enough. But that's the way I define phenomenology, a way of knowing the world by being engaged in the world and being engaged in transforming the world. Yeah, I think that's a, a really helpful way to, <laughs> to understand it and to uh, you know, proceed with the conversation. Mm-hmm. I also think that, you know, uh, again, going back to something that, that you talked about earlier in terms of invisibility, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that uh, really struck me, you know, when I first uh, encountered Du Bois and when, you know, you and I first met way back when, 
Right. Um, <laughs> well, not that long ago. Not that long ago, but it, you know, it's but been, it seems like. I mean, it's been it's been such a rich relationship that it seems like forever. It does. It mm -hmm. does. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that you made me see, right, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how I was reading Du Bois and how we should be thinking about this, and that really had a profound impact in terms of you know my approach to the study of communities mm -hmm. uh, was you know this notion of invisibility. Uh, and invisibility meaning denied humanity. Right. Right. And, you know, the Du Bois sought to make visible those things that a racist society wants to make invisible. Right. And I found that so relevant mm -hmm. to what was, you know, what is happening at the level of communities, but also, you know, inside of you know, inside of prison and under the rubric of, you know, carcerality, mm -hmm. right? So that we can look at, and we're talking simultaneously about not just incarcerated people, but racialized subjects, mm -hmm. but also we're talking about gender, we're talking about um, issues of disability, we're talking about, you know, a number of different things. We're talking mm -hmm. about class and, and what have you. So, you know, when you mentioned that, Du Bois is innovative in this way, mm -hmm. as is Baldwin. One of the things that, you know, I remember you saying in that first lecture, uh, and for folks that don't know the, the backstory, and this may not be, you know, interesting to everybody, but I happened to go to one of Tony's lectures a number <laughs> of years ago uh, at Temple University after, you know, a very long day of teaching. And it was, if I recall correctly, it was it's supposed to be the spring semester, but spring in Philly, you know, is like February. Uh, it doesn't feel springy outside. Right. And you were doing your Du Bois series and it was cold, it was rainy, it was dark, and I wanted to go home so badly. And I said, let me go check this out. And I, you know, you'd been teaching a temple for a number of years. I've been teaching a temple for a number of years, uh, but I'd never been to one of your lectures. And I went there, you know, um, and my mind was blown. I, I can literally say that. My mind was blown. I sat in the back and I nearly filled up an entire notebook, taking notes, not just during your lecture, but afterwards on Du Bois. And then I went back and I reread Souls of Black Folk, which I'd been teaching, by the way. And, and I felt like, wow, I'd missed so much, right? You know, I say all of that, say that the main thing I, recall from that lecture was that you pointed out that what Du Bois is doing is really challenging the centrality of European thought, mm -hmm. right, as a mm -hmm. universal model for mm -hmm. knowledge construction. Mm -hmm. And that shift, right, is really profoundly important, not just in terms of the study of racialized subjects, but for social science more broadly mm -hmm. right and and this just seems to get glossed over mm -hmm. right so this just seems to get neglected it's not something that makes you know the white academy very comfortable mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about you know <laughs> that right there not so much the story yeah. of you yeah. know me coming to the lecture well i i have to say something that. about your being at that lecture <laughs> because people that don't know you probably don't know the type of enthusiasm you're capable of expressing. <laughs> <laughs> and and nicely I, put, Tony, enthusiasm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I'll tell Brian this and others, you know, because I was standing up there and, you know, Kim was all the way in the back. Back row, and, I sure yeah, was. Back, back row, row. And, and you know, Kim always has a lot of hair, or used to at that <laughs> time. But Kim, I mean, she just kind of leapt out of her seat at points. I couldn't understand it. <laughs> and, you know, on the basis of that, she reframed her dissertation mm -hmm. and had sure to, did. yeah, had to debate with, um, with her advisors and others on her committee about uh, whether this was plausible mm -hmm. as a research framing 
you know, and whether or not data supported Du Bois's um, assertions, or mm -hmm. whether or not you could use a Du Boisian approach, mm -hmm. which meant well, what they what they basically mm -hmm. said was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that Du Bois was not relevant to the study of communities. And wow. that was definitely a what the fuck moment. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, have you read the Philadelphia Negro? Like, I just, I could not believe this. And I'm thinking, wow, how'd y'all get PhDs? And you got, you're putting me through changes just to get one? Like, I, I just, man. Well, I, I think, I think my point about uh, Kim's enthusiasm <laughs> is, is being validated. <laughs> but yeah, but, you know, and then, I mean, I remember you doing all this literature review and finding all of these articles in obscure journals from all over the world that were talking about Du Bois and social science, Du Bois and community studies, Du Bois, and a whole range of things. But so much of what we would call Du Boisian studies is suppressed, uh, especially now. You know, Kim, now more than when you were doing your work mm -hmm. because of the, the repression in this new neoliberal environment in these universities, this new McCarthyism, mm -hmm. where Du Bois challenges, and you are absolutely right, the epistemologies of the European approach to knowing society, especially the American society. And you, you use the word racialized subjects, which I'm not completely comfortable with. It's too academic for me. It kind of takes the, the how, do, how do you say, the edge off of what the real situation, these are not just, we are not just racialized subjects. Mm -hmm. We are profoundly dehumanized, living under a system of unimagined horror and fear, especially if you are poor. And everybody who is, quote, racialized does not suffer Absolutely. Uh, this horror in the same ways. That's why the study of incarceration is so important, because the incarcerated are the symbols, the manifestations of the future of a society and a system that has reached a moment of decadence. It is in decline. And so in one or another way, most Americans will experience precisely what the incarcerated are experiencing right now. And this is why Du Bois is important. And you, you, you put your, your finger on something very important. You know, Du Bois as an essayist, is probably one of the great examples of the invention of metaphor to describe social reality. Mm -hmm. The color line, another mm -hmm. metaphor that he used to describe this is the veil. And mm -hmm. the veil to me is as striking as the metaphor of the color line. Why is it? Those in the penitentiary live behind a veil. Those outside don't see them but they see the society far clearer than most people who are not in prison. Mm -hmm. Remember, you know, the veil, think of the veil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Think of the Muslim woman who is veiled, right? Mm -hmm. She is veiled, so the outside world cannot see most of her physical features, but she can see the outside world. Mm -hmm. You know, Du Bois used another concept when speaking of African-Americans and what he called double-sidedness. Mm -hmm. You know, the incarcerated have a double-sidedness. Mm -hmm. They are, in a sense, a seventh son, that metaphorical son, born with a veil, a membrane over his eyes who can see far more than others. You know, in a lot of ways, you can compare it uh, to Plato's allegory of the cave. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, the incarcerated are special people. They have special sightedness. And you take, you know, Mumia Abu-Jamal is probably the best known example of this. Uh, 
he sees the world far clearer than most people who live in it every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, I, I mean, your work has been very important to me. I, I was, you know, in the enthusiasm that you brought to it and the tenaciousness. And every time they told you no, you became more busy, more committed. <laughs> that's, just, that's a way, that's a word, right? That's a way yeah, to describe yeah, yeah. it right there. And, and I just want to get a copy of your, your literature review, if you don't mind. <laughs> like you need it. Like you I, need very it. badly. Um, <laughs> but I think that one of the things that Du Bois does, and you say this, this is the language that, you know, the, that I've heard you use, is that he gives us the emancipatory tools that we need to fight this racist society to combat that. And, and I think that when we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about the study of these questions and of these issues, and I don't want to get too deeply into, you know, the academy and uh, those struggles right now, we can certainly have you back to talk about, you know, about that, because I think that that actually does fit in with our broader goal of situating this podcast uh, in terms of abolition. But I think right now for, for the discussion that we're having, one of the problems that we confront is that some of us are seen as not being able to engage in the questioning and our, our questions are seen as not being legitimate, right? right? So can you say something about that, you know, and, and how you see Du Bois informing that and how we might think about this in terms of, and I know this is a big question, <laughs> in terms of abolition in general, well, yeah, and that's it. And if you can yeah. do that in 30 seconds, I'm kidding. About 30 seconds. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, this is another characteristic of Kim that I, I that the audience should should know. <laughs> you know, she she starts off very formal, but then her sense of humor uh, <laughs> asserts itself as she becomes comfortable. Uh, but you know, um this question of academic knowledge is very important. I think academic knowledge is important in a very limited way in this whole struggle to understand what we are up against. I think it is the non-academic or the researcher that is not uh, connected to most academic institutions who will do the best work. Let me, let me give you an example. I mean, like I said, I believe prisoners, those behind the bars, have an insight on the society in which we live and its future that few outside have. In other words, you know, that idea of flesh of the flesh and bone of the bone of those within the veil, we could say of those who are incarcerated, you have to have a connection and engagement and not just in passing or not just through government statistics or not just through archival evidence. Mm-hmm. You have to get closer to this situation. In fact, I would say a great project for social science is to encourage and to teach social scientific thinking and methods to people who are incarcerated so they can begin to do the phenomenological work of explaining just what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can be outside of a prison, outside of incarceration, outside of the invisibility that goes with all of that in the prison or outside of the prison. Uh, I don't think you can do that and you're living a bourgeois uh, or upper middle class life. You just don't have it. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that's the way I would go about it. I think uh, the social science we need today uh, is not gonna come from academic departments or from academics, certainly not from most tenured professors who have to go through a vetting process, which at the end of the day, vets for tenure, uh, the least capable of oh. understanding the system. Oh, oh, you went there. Okay. 
Um, I'm glad you did. I'm no, I'm glad you did. I mean, you know, you opened that door, so now I'm going to put my foot right through it. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that said, I think that there's also, you know, and this is, uh, this hopefully is interesting, you know, for listeners, um, but the notion of uh, an unbiased researcher, right mm -hmm. that that informs a lot of the ways that we approach the study of problems so mm -hmm. whether we're talking about incarceration whether we're talking about how incarceration impacts communities or what have you that the notion of the unbiased researcher um is really you know the the prevailing view mm -hmm. right in the sciences right and that that presents obstacles um, <laughs> for the studies that we are saying that we need and that give us the richest, the most mm -hmm. thick information that we can possibly get, right? So mm -hmm. do you mind saying something about that part of it? Well, you know, on the one side, yeah, I, if I'll try to say something. And, and, you know, this is a bigger question of understanding, you know, the topic at hand than might appear at first. You know, assumptions about race, class, and gender, and even sexuality, that mm -hmm. one brings to the table. Now, are very important, because assumptions about things like that are rooted in one's assumptions about justice, democracy, citizenship, and the nature and quality of the social system that we live under. Right. If you know, if as a, and I put quotes around this, victim of the mm. system, uh, one knows it as an oppressed or victimized person, you know something about oppression and you take oppression as a given, as a constant. Mm -hmm. The person mm -hmm. that does not experience that takes it as, well, you used the word, as something that's malleable. Mm-hmm something that we can reform our way out of. So, you know, most academics, and here you have to, you know, place them within their uh, class positionality. Most academics are upper middle class mm -hmm. or aspire to be upper middle class. And I know there, you know, there, there's a precarious academic labor force, but most are either upper middle class or aspire to be upper, upper middle class Oh, and most of the ones who are published are in that upper middle class category. Mm -hmm. For them, the system works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And therefore, Absolutely. what they wish to do is to reform the system rather than to fundamentally change the system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, so I, you know, I, I, I think in the struggle uh, to end the carceral state, the police state, the prison industrial complex. Really, at the vanguard of that will be the incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And we've seen instances of this before. I mean, one need only mention the name George Jackson. Absolutely. Right? Or the name Mumi Abu-Jamal, you know, or talk about the Attica uprising or mm -hmm. other prison uprisings over the years. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were sending a message from behind the walls to those outside. Absolutely. And, you know, the establishment moved quickly to silence, crush, or murder those people. And, and you know, I think that that indicates, that's symbolic of the truth that they were telling. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that the, the other thing that you have me thinking about as, as you're talking there mm -hmm. is this intersection of scholarship and activism, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're narrowly defining scholarship and, Absolutely. you know, out, being outside of the academy now for two years has been healing. I'll put yeah. it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been extremely healing for me. And it has given me, you know, an opportunity to kind of distance myself from a lot of the 
ways in which the academy conditions you to think that things should be, right? So, you know, separating activism and scholarship, for example. But Du Bois is working at that intersection, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like he's merging these two things together. And there have been, you know, a lot of people who have written about Du Bois. I'm thinking of uh, Michael Katz, the historian, you know, who talked about and wrote about Du Bois, uh, Du Bois's importance to public policy, right? Mm -hmm. And how we can use good social science research to inform public policy, right? Because if our notions of, as you said, if our assumptions, if our assumptions are trash, um, the the, <laughs> the solutions that we come up with are going to be trash, right? That right. we're not really going to formulate good public policy in light of trash assumptions. How do you bring together those two worlds? How do you bring together activism and scholarship? How do they inform each other? And I'm thinking, you know, specifically now about the work that you're doing with the Saturday Free School. And I would love for you to say something about that. Yeah. yeah wow. <laughs> you don't ask just one question. Kat. I don't. It's like a 12-part question yeah. right there. It's like, I'm that person at the conference right now who's like, okay, I have one question and the question has 12 parts and I'm already giving you part of the answer, but really I want to hear more of what you have to say. So, yep, I did that. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, one thing, um, being myself away from the academy for three years has made me a bit contemptuous of academic language. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean to be uh, too critical, but uh, the scholar activist is not just one who has discovered the intersection between scholarship and activism. I think when we talk about a scholar activist, uh, we're talking, or a radical scholar, mm. uh, we're talking about all of this in the same package, in the same person. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are people who cannot conceive of research and scholarship outside of practical results. Yep. Mm -hmm. And who is not first and primarily interested in writing to win prizes or get a, a higher paycheck, a larger paycheck from the university. Mm -hmm. uh, there, are, there are people who write and research and think because they're interested in the truth, because they're interested in using the truth or whatever parts of the truth we can discover to transform the world, to make it better for mm. human beings. That type of individual is, and you see it in Du Bois, and you really see it in Baldwin, mm -hmm. are so in love with humanity that the love of the truth and the love of humanity are inseparable. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's, in that essay that you were mentioning uh, down at the cross, I mean, that's kind of at the, at the core of what Baldwin does. You know, let me just give you an example. You know, Western philosophy, even in the 20th and the 21st century, is uh, defined as something that very, very smart people do who set themselves away from the matting crowd or the wretched of the earth mm -hmm. and uh, who meditate and who think and who come up with systems of thought. Well, Baldwin felt, as we've said before, first of all, he could not have isolated himself that way. He had to be, he had to take his own life world and his own struggles as the starting point for his thinking about humanity. And I take my, my lead from people like that. I'm not that interested these days in what academics do or what they think. I think the academy is 
in many ways adversarial to those who are incarcerated. And many use the incarcerated uh, as a way to advance their own careers. So this rank careerism is a big problem in the construction of knowledge, especially about the incarcerated and about the poor. I mean, that's the way I would approach it. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's why, you know, I think if you take the least of these, the incarcerated, and they become the intellectual vanguard, there is not a separation of scholarship and activism. Because mm -hmm. if you're behind the walls, it's all the same. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, to, to the point that you just made about the adversarial relationship between the academy and uh, incarcerated people, mm. there are a lot of programs that basically, you know, are behind the walls, right, yes. that are started, that are led by, you know, uh, academics. And those are the programs that get funded, right? Mm -hmm, those are mm -hmm. the programs that are esteemed and held up, you know, as uh, models for how to do this work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, critique many of these programs over the years. And, you know, one in particular, and I'm not going to name it uh, mm -hmm. right now, but, mm -hmm. you know, maybe for another, another episode, and we can uh, talk about that later. <laughs> but basically has as one of its, you know, rules, uh, the fact that you cannot criticize, you know, the, the prison or, you know, prison officials or prison policy within a context of the classroom inside of prison. So, mm. <laughs> you know, which frustrates me to absolutely no end because, you know, on the one hand, it's like, okay, we know that uh, incarcerated people are asking for more education. We saw this you know, coming out of the Vaughn Rebellion as mm -hmm. one of, you know, the demands that incarcerated people have is that they want so badly to have educational programs. Right. Then on the other hand, you have educational programs, you know, that are like, okay, that one of the you know, requirements for participating in that program, not just as a facilitator, but also as a student on the inside, is that you can't discuss what is actually happening, hmm. right? And I find that such a, you know, a, 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 there's a cognitive dissonance for me in terms mm -hmm. of trying to bring, you know, these two things together, um, mm -hmm. which is why, you know, I would never get approval for having a, a a program inside of prisons because i mean obviously with you know my my um my research my commitments and and what have you you know it's like they i'd be the troublemaker they're mm -hmm. like no absolutely not this is not the kind of thing that that we want so you know can you talk a little bit about that because i could see yeah no this is i can give you a couple of um, what at least one example example mm -hmm. of one person that has two sides to it and that's mumi abul jamal mm -hmm. you know um here in philly and at temple we fought for him to be admitted to the phd program in african-american studies mm -hmm. Now, of course, Mumi Abu-Jamal is a world-known and world-class intellectual. And why would Temple not be interested in having him as a student uh, in a PhD program? Mm -hmm. Of course, it would bring great fame uh, and interest to the African-American Studies Department. He would enrich it with his insights and uh, so on and so forth. Students, undergraduate and graduate, and the faculty mm -hmm. uh, would be enriched by it. And, you know, we went about getting all of his stuff in. I think it cost $300, you know, to get his application in. And suddenly we find out that he's rejected. I don't, I'm not completely convinced that he was rejected. I think Malefe Asante and his allies on the faculty literally tore the application up, didn't admit it, or didn't submit oh, wow. it. Wow. And even if they had, let us say, 
and the dean's office turned it down. What was the fight that you put up afterwards? Mm -hmm. Right. But I think it was uh, the former rather than the latter. They tore it up because, mm. you know, if you know anything about Malefe Asante, he wants the department to be a cult rather than a center of research and uh, the production of knowledge. The second thing is that uh, Momia applied to uh, the department, I think, of comparative literature at Ohio State University. Mm -hmm. The faculty supported it. He was admitted, but then the board of trustees turned his application down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that Mumia is now taking classes in spite of the, the board of trustees turning his application down, is taking classes in the PhD program in the hope that the uh, the decision of the Board of Trustees will be overturned. Now, mm. this gets to this point that I was trying to make. Who better to understand this class of human beings who are non-citizens, dehumanized, who are behind the bar, who are behind the walls, and those who have been released from behind the walls but still carry the stigma? Mm -hmm. of, 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 uh, of having been incarcerated. Who best to understand that than a person like Mumia? Who best to understand the impact of, 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 uh, of, uh, of solitary confinement? You know, he was on death row in solitary confinement for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Who best to understand the medical conditions and all that goes on in prisons and the legal smothering of and strangulation of the rights of prisoners. So, look, you know, we need a revolution, not just in the society, but a radical transformation of the academy.